Last Sunday afternoon, we had a little family getaway. We took off and went to Indianapolis just for a night. Anytime, anytime we get a chance to spend just one night at a hotel that has an indoor pool where I can wear Connor out, or maybe he wears me out, it kind of depends. And uh, Connor just loves swimming. He's, he's crazy about it. And, and so anytime we have a chance to do that, we take it. And we, we love those kind of times away. But if you remember last Sunday, uh, the weather was not the best. In fact, one of you told me that you weren't here last week because you were rained in, you were flooded <laughs> into your house. And hate to hear that. I mean, the weather was just awful. And so as we're driving to Indy on, on I-70 last Sunday, uh, we kept on wondering, should we turn around? Because the rain was just relentless. It just continued to pour. When we travel, especially when we travel on the interstate, we use an app on my phone called Waze. Some of you people have Waze. I know a few of you. Some of you are Wazers. I know that you have it because you honk at me when I'm driving down the road because you'll, you'll pull it up and you can, you can do that on Waze. You can beep at each other. This is not the point in the sermon when you should pull out your phone and download Waze, by the way. Don't be doing that right now. But we use this app called Waze. It's a great GPS app. The more people that use it, the better Waze works because people are able to report problems and tell you how the road conditions are. And we we just got into Terre Haute when this alert came up on Waze saying that there was an accident ahead on Interstate 70 and that we should take a detour. And it gave me the detour on 40. And I didn't really want to do that, but it told me to go around and I sat there and looked at that warning that popped up, and I thought, what does Waze know? You know, how does it know for sure that there's an accident? And, and maybe it's not that bad anyway. You know, maybe, maybe we'll get up there, and, and, you know, that's at least 20 miles up the road. It'll probably be taken care of by then. So I, the whole way there, I was like, nah, I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to take the detour. The interstate is faster. <laughs> We got to Brazil, and we had to stop and get some coffee and things, and, and as I'm there at, at the pilot station in Brazil, I ran into a truck driver, and he said, do not take 70. For, you know, you want to get off at this exit. He said, it is standstill. It is backed up at least six miles. No one is moving, and it turned out that a semi had turned over and was laying in the middle of the lanes, and uh, it was still there the next day when we came back. You know, it was a very bad accident. Thankfully, I don't think anyone was hurt, but it, it was not a good accident at all. And so we, we trusted ways, and we followed the detour and, and went around, and we made our destination just a little bit later. That app saved us a lot of trouble. And the reason that app worked was because of two things. One, I had loaded our destination on the app. I had told it where we were going. I had set a destination so it knew the path that we should take to be on that destination. So one, I had loaded the destination. The second reason it worked is because I trusted it. <laughs> even when I didn't want to, even when I wasn't sure I needed to, I trusted it. I could have ignored it. I could have tried my own way, and I would have suffered for that. And it seems to me that the journey through life itself works best when those two things are in place when we have a declaration of where we're going. We have a destination in mind. I have decided to follow Jesus. And two, when we trust that He will show us the way. We're going to look today at Luke chapter 9, 
beginning in verse 51 and going to verse 56. If you're using those Bibles that we have in the, in the seats for you, it is page 868. If you're using this massive study Bible that I got myself for Christmas, it is page 1974. I decided two things I wanted to do this year. I wanted to read the Bible more, and I wanted to get some more exercise. And I found a way to do it both at the same time. This is a pivotal point in Luke's Gospel. Everything changes from here on out. This is really the beginning. Here in Luke chapter 9, it's the beginning of Jesus' final year of earthly ministry. From here on out, the focus is on Him going to the cross. And for those who follow Him, we need to understand where He's going. And we need to know that we can trust Him. We begin reading there in Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him and went and enter, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Luke makes that statement there. In fact, he makes it twice. Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. And that's something that those of us who follow Him need to understand. That is our destination. That is what is ahead. Where does this road take us? This road takes us to the cross. And two, we need to trust Him. That He knows what's ahead. He knows the path. You see, that's what following Jesus is really all about. And as we look at the rest of Luke's Gospel, as we begin this, this look through the Gospel here, we see the call in our own lives. It's a call for an uncompromising commitment to follow Jesus. That phrase, He set his face. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's an old phrase that is used over and over again in the Old Testament. In Genesis, when Laban is, uh, when, when uh, Jacob is running away from his, his father-in-law Laban, and so Jacob takes off in the middle of the night. He takes his wives, Laban's daughters. He takes all of his sheep. He takes everything that he's accumulated. He, he takes the household gods. He takes all of this stuff, and he he escapes from Laban in the middle of the night. It says he set his face to the hill country. Nothing was going to turn him. He was going to the hill country. No one was going to stop him. That's where he was going. My favorite use in the Old Testament, though, is a, just a wonderful little passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. And it's, it, it's, it's the suffering servant speaking in Isaiah 50. It's the servant who later we discover this is Jesus. You know, it's one of the most profound and, and specific prophecies of the coming of Christ that we have there in Isaiah. But in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, the suffering servant says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. No matter what's ahead, and what's ahead for that servant is pain and suffering and trials. He says, I know that God will not disgrace me. And so he says, I have set my face like a flint, like a stone, sharp, pointed 
and fixed firmly. He's not turning back. He's not looking back. It's really rare though these days that we see that kind of life-changing resolve. We don't, we don't see that a lot anymore. It seems like no matter what commitment you make these days, there's, there's always a way to get out of it. There's always a way to, to, to get out of that commitment. We've seen people go into the military, right? We've seen people go into the military and, and a few weeks later they discover it's hard. It, it's, it's rough and they're not always nice to us. And so they, they find a way to get out of that. We see people who get jobs, you know, and they, they get a job and, and they work it for a couple of weeks. My wife's told me about this kind of stuff over and over again with, with, with her job that people start, they work for a couple of weeks, you train them, you get them their uniforms, and then ah, there's another job down the road that's pretty much the same job, but maybe it's easier. And then maybe they come back a few months later. You, you never know because we just continually do that kind of stuff. We, marriage, you know, we, no fault divorces. It, you know, there's no fault. So, you know, it's easier to get out of. And we make commitments. We buy a car. We buy a house. And after a while, it's, well, I let the bank take that back. You know, that's fine. The bank will just take it back. Is that a problem? Is that a problem in our society today? Is it a problem when people look at a church and say, well, I know I made a commitment to this church, but there's another church just down the road. You know, there's another church I can go to. And so they don't keep those commitments. We don't have this understanding of, of that kind of resolve that Jesus is talking about where we set our face to a certain destination and we keep that destination, that life-changing resolve that Jesus calls us to. Here in chapter 9, everything, everything changes. You know, Prior to chapter 9, people are following Jesus because it's fun. Because He, he kind of tweaks at the Romans and He kind of tweaks at the, at the Jewish officials. And, and hey, they're getting snacks. You know, He's feeding them and He's doing these miracles and these awesome things are happening. And so they're following because it's fun and, and, and they're, they're seeing all this wonderful stuff. But suddenly in chapter 9, it gets serious. Verse 20, Peter asks, or Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that confession, the same confession we ask you to make when you commit to following Jesus, when you commit to being a part of what we're doing here. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We, we stand on that confession. Verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. Now remember, this is a full year before the crucifixion. This is a full year before He goes to the cross. And He says, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. What did they, how are they to understand that statement? Take up your cross. In their culture, in their time, they only understood it one way. You're going to die. If you're taking up a cross, if you're carrying a cross, you are going to die. Do we understand that? Do we get that today when we say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I don't think we do. I think we have different ideas about what our goals are. I think we have different ideas about what our destinations are and different ideas about why we do what we do and why we come here. You know, we're not here. I'm sorry, but we are not here to make America a Christian nation. Okay? That's not why we do this. Now, if we do, that's wonderful, but that's not the goal. The goal is not to make America a, a Christian nation. The goal of coming to church isn't because, well, if I come to church, maybe my kids will mind. 
And, you know, maybe they'll do right. You know, that, that's a wonderful thing if that happens, but that's not the goal. The, the goal of coming here isn't to have a good marriage or be financially responsible and debt-free. Those are wonderful things, and if they happen, God bless. But the goal here is 100% surrender to Jesus Christ. Nothing less, no matter how wonderful, no matter how honorable, nothing less is what Jesus calls us to. That's our path. That's our path as a church. That's our path as individual Christians. That's where we're going. But one thing you have to notice in the story also is that following Jesus requires sacrifice. And this is the trust part. This is where trust comes in. There was no way in and of myself last Sunday evening that I could know that accident was ahead. There, was, there were no signs. I couldn't see flashing lights. There was no way I could know that that accident was ahead. But my GPS did. And it was able to direct me around when I would have tried to go through. And in the same way, when we follow Jesus, we can never be sure what's ahead. We can never be exactly sure what's, what's ahead of us. Troubles are going to come. Troubles will come. Difficult times will come. What are we going to do when that happens? Are we going to try to find our own way? Are we going to give up? Or are we going to trust the one that we're following? Are we going to stay on the path that we've set our face to? You notice this incident here in chapter 9 takes place in a village of the Samaritans. And you remember, remember the Samaritans? Okay, the Samaritans, they, they hated the Jews. The Jews hated them. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds. They were the lowest of the low. But Jesus often included the Samaritans. He often went to the Samaritans. And some of our favorite stories from the Gospel revolve around the Samaritans. But not, <laughs> not this one. They knew where He was going. They knew He had set His face to Jerusalem, and they also knew that they weren't allowed to go there, and so they rejected him. And it says there in verses 53 through 55, it says, But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Love that. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What I love about that story is Jesus is just a little bit more mature than me. Maybe quite a bit more mature than me. Because if I was Jesus, my response would have been, yeah, I want to see that. You know, show me how you do that. You know, I don't know. I didn't teach you how to do that. Show me how to call fire down from heaven because I've never done that. You do it though. You show me how you call fire down from heaven. And I would have just let them try a couple of times. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he rebukes them. Who taught them that they could do that? Where did they get the idea that they could call fire down from heaven? What made them think they could do that? Well, you know, a few verses earlier, here in the same chapter, a few verses earlier, we have the story of the transfiguration. It starts out there in verse 28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took, them, he took with him Peter and John and James. So John and James are on this trip, and they went up to a, on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses 
and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Elijah is there. Elijah. Elijah, who on two occasions in his lifetime, Elijah called fire down from heaven. Elijah, who never died, but instead was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Right? That's where that comes from. Elijah, you know, and I, I have to always, I always think about these, these cute little Jewish, you know, we, we had our kids go out here to, you know, junior church here just a little bit ago, and I always think about these little Jewish boys, you know, the, James and John, and, you know, growing up as they, as they must have, you know, they, they went to synagogue and maybe they had like synagogue school or, you know, vacation synagogue school or something, you know, or vacation tourist school. And so, so they would go and, and they probably colored pictures of their heroes, you know, just like we do now. You know, you get Daniel and all these others. I bet they colored a lot of pictures of Elijah, you know, stuck them up on the fridge whatever they had that was like fridges, you know. Uh, they, they, they color these pictures, and you know, that was their hero when they were little boys. They wanted to hear stories about Elijah, and Elijah who called fire down on the prophets of Baal, and Elijah calls fire down on this guy, and that was, that was their dream. You know, they probably had little plays in their, in their synagogues, and they, one of them got to be Elijah one year, you know. That was just the, the highlight of their life. The, the Elijah was this amazing hero of theirs. Made a huge impression on it. But had Jesus ever called fire down from heaven? No. Jesus hadn't done that. They had spent at least two years with Him at this point, and they had never seen that. They spend one afternoon with Elijah, and all they can think is, fire! But did you even notice, what is Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about? It says there in verse 31, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They didn't talk about fire. They talked about the cross. They talked about his suffering. They talked about his sacrifice and what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. The path of sacrifice, the path of humility, that path that he had set his face towards. It's not a path of fire and brimstone. I know a lot of us don't get this. I just want to tell you, I know a lot of preachers who don't get this. I know a lot of preachers who, who just, just don't grasp this concept. I can't tell you the number of times I have heard preachers, young and old alike, tell me that they see themselves as a modern-day John the Baptist. You know, I, over and over again, I, I've had preachers tell me, I just see myself as a modern-day John the Baptist. I'm going to set things right. I'm going to tell people the way it is. Fire and brimstone. What did John the Baptist say? John the Baptist pointed his disciples to Jesus and he said, He must increase and I must decrease. So if you have one John the Baptist and he decreases, how many John the Baptists do we have left? How many John the Baptists do we need? We don't need modern day John the Baptist. We need modern day Jesuses. We need people who are going to put their noses to the cross, set their face to the cross and follow. Jesus doesn't want modern-day modern day John the Baptist. He wants modern-day Jesuses. I was convicted of that recently. You know, I got to thinking about something that happened, something that happened a long time ago, something that happened years ago, before I came to Kansas. Um, and I got, I got convicted as I was thinking about it. This, this probably is going to surprise some of you. 
But um, there are people out there, there are people who, uh, who don't like me. <laughs> You're like, what? What's not to like? You know, there are people that don't like me. Some of them are preachers. And many years ago, when I was working with a different group uh, in a different church, there was a group of about two or three preachers who decided that they needed to launch a campaign against me because I was doing something that they didn't like. And what I was doing, I was meeting and praying with other people from other churches. Uh, If you've got a problem with that, let me let you know, I still do it. They didn't like that. They didn't like that I was meeting and praying with you know, Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and all these other people. They didn't think that was right. And so they had this meeting and they, they had this little group get together and they sent out emails because they wanted to make sure that I wasn't allowed to come back to their group and meet and pray with them either. So I went to each one of them because if you send me an email, I'll come visit you. It's just the way it works. I went to each one of them and I addressed this problem. Now, I was firm in my rebuke, but I did not call fire down from heaven. I didn't do that. But I was fairly stern in my rebuke. I let them know, as concerned as they were, because they felt that I had made a biblical error. They felt that I had made a biblical error by doing this. Because apparently the Bible says you're not supposed to pray with other people. I don't know. But I let them know that I was concerned about their biblical error because the Bible in Matthew chapter 18, I can actually cite a verse and chapter for, for the error that I felt they had made. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you've got a problem with your brother, if you've got a problem with your brother, you go to him and you work it out with your brother. You don't send emails to other preachers saying, I don't like what this guy is doing. You don't talk about him behind their back. You don't deal with it on Facebook. You go to that person and you deal with it face to face and you work it out. I told them they should have done that. The other day I was convicted because I realized there's something else I should have done. I should have also told them, now no matter what, I will never campaign against you. And I will never send emails out about you. And I will always love you. And I will always be here. And if you ever need me to pray with you, or if you ever need anything, you call me and I will be there. I should have said that. Because that would have really messed with their heads. Right? (laughs) Would have really just messed them up. But more so, I should have done that because that's what Jesus would have done, isn't it? That's how Jesus would have handled it. Jesus who, a year later, a year after this event, Jesus is hanging on the cross and what does He say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's, that's the path. That's the path that He calls us to. And so he, he doesn't call fire down on the Samaritans, but He does rebuke James and John because their desire was not in keeping with His desire. And we need to be aware of what Jesus calls us to. We need to be aware so that we can demonstrate that we belong to Him. And we need to conduct our lives modeling His humility, modeling His love, and modeling His sacrifice. I think the part that bothers me the most about this passage is verse 56. 
And it's, it's simply the conclusion. Verse 56 just says, and they went on to another village. That's it. They went on to another village. It's a very final statement. Very final finality in that statement. It never says they came back. It never says there was another opportunity. It never says that the Samaritans came running and following and said, wait, we changed our mind. You can come back to our village. When the offer was over, it was over. That's tough. That is really tough because I, I like to talk a lot about grace. I believe in God's amazing grace. I named one of my kids after it, that much I, how much I believe in it. I believe in deathbed confessions. I believe they happen. I believe that we always have a chance, that there's always a chance to repent, that there's always a chance to believe, but I also believe the truth. And the truth is, the longer you reject Jesus, the easier it gets to reject Jesus. And we see that in the Scriptures. We see that in life. We see that in people we know. In the Bible, over and over again, we have examples of people who harden their heart and they keep hardening their heart. And you know what God does? He lets them. He lets them make that choice. If you choose to harden your heart, He's going to let you harden your heart. You see people in life who continually reject opportunity after opportunity. And I have buried way too many people who have spent their lives avoiding the call and avoiding the truth and hoping that one day, maybe, they'll make a choice. Jesus calls in John or in, in Luke 9.23. He says, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. And then in verse 51, it says that from this point on, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was ahead in Jerusalem. No turning around. No turning back. No turning back. So will we follow Him? And when we follow Him, what does that look like? What does following Him look like day in and day out? And that's what I want you to think about. Next time you're faced with one of those decisions, next time things aren't going your way and plans haven't worked out the way you thought they should. The next time, the next time you want to call fire down from heaven, and I know there will be times when you want to do that. I want you to stop and ask yourself, is this how I follow Jesus in this situation? Is this how I most reflect Jesus in this situation? And if not, why am I doing it? If this isn't what Jesus looks like, then why am I doing it? How could I follow Jesus through this situation? We come to this table every week. And one of the reasons we come to it is because we do not have in and of ourselves what it takes to follow Jesus. We have to admit that. We don't have the resolve. We don't have the commitment. We don't have enough. And so we come to Him week after week and we take up His cross week after week and we come to the table and we take the body and we take the blood and we confess our need over and over again. Jesus calls us to a life of complete surrender. Will you follow Him in that complete surrender? Let's stand together.